Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, I'm also a senior fellow at AEI, and Yuria Zoja, not a senior fellow at AEI, but at the Middle East Institute and adjunct professor at Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, it's just the three of us, but to make up for it, uh, Julia is joining us from Bucharest, Romania, uh, where she has had a chance to to experience the Romanian debate on Ukraine and and and, and some of these Eastern European questions firsthand. Um, and it seems appropriate to turn first to her to to give us uh, a, a a sense of where where the discussion is, what the recurrent themes are, whether the Romanian resolve to help Ukraine uh, remains as strong as when we when we discussed it uh, a few weeks ago, or whether there are any any sort of disquieting dynamics that we should be aware of. Yeah, so live from Bucharest, and we also have Keep Listening, a surprise for you next week or so when Dalibor and I will be uniting um, on the Eastern Front somewhere. Um, that's still a surprise. But for now, for Bucharest, it feels I've been here now a few days and it feels like I'm in the Balkans, which I am. <laughs> um, it's all very chaotic, very confusing and very um, in denial overall. Um, I feel like I see and I hear Ukrainians at every corner. Um, they seem to be having a good time um, drinking with the Romanians um, in cafes and outdoor bars. Um, so it does not feel like you're on the Eastern Front. Uh, it feels like people are just ignoring um the fact that there's war across the border, mostly, partially also purposefully doing that. Um, and it feels very chaotic because um, it also feels a bit like the country here is falling apart, not because of the war, but because of internal matter. So just the other day when I was getting here, a bridge um, that was uh, solidified um, just six months ago collapsed uh, because of corruption, essentially, not because of the war. It looks like we're in the middle of the Donbass, um, but we're not. And uh, and then we have um, when you're listening to the radio in an Uber car, then you feel a little bit like you're in the war because we keep having everyday news of um, uh, an unidentified plane that surveilled from Serbia to Romania to Hungary and landed in Bulgaria. And we don't know what that's all about. Um, we have ads um, from the Ministry of Health urging us not to take the anti-nuclear pill until there is a nuclear incident. That that feels scary. Um, and uh, when you ask people, they tend to um, uh, put in front of you random people a lot of conspiracy theories, um, some more, more appalling than others. I feel like um, there's a... Um, 
there's a misunderstanding when it comes to the fact that this conflict, this war is about values. Um, and that's frightening because um, some people equalize a anti-Americanism seems to be on the rise. Um, people are equalizing Russia and the United States um, as if values do not matter, um, some form of European pragmatism. And then maybe something to kind of get us started into how it looks from the Eastern Front. I feel I see that um, countries overall, when you start talking to experts and analysts and diplomats, um, they are very different in, in terms of public opinion from one country to another. The most interesting thing I've seen or heard and put together is that when we're looking at the Ukraine war for Poland and for the Baltic countries, it feels like it's their war. Um, and it's the first time for them that uh, someone else is fighting on behalf of them to protect them and their freedom. Then people um, I've heard saying that um, some countries like Slovakia and the Czech Republic act as if it's the alliance's war. We're supporting it, but it's not ours. And then here in Romania, it's um, a neighborhood war. It's not our war. It's not an alliances war. It's uh, a bit like um, the former Yugoslav wars. They were also next door and we supported the United States from here, but it's not our business. Um, and and then the back to how confused people and chaotic um, people um, think about this conflict is that when you start talking to both officials and experts here, um, they many of them do not have a clear opinion. And people get invited even from the United States just the other day. I cannot attribute um, because I've been asked not to, um, but from the West coming here and saying that Russia will win the war, that Ukraine is going, very detailed, that Ukraine is going to be partitioned, it will never join the West, and uh, that um, the official language of the whole Ukraine is going to be Russian. So this, to me, further amplifies the confusion here, because on the other side, there's both here in Romania as well as in Moldova, which is painful to see when you're from here, is that there's not a lot of talk um, uh, there's no public debates, no explanations, no beyond the messages of, particularly here in Romania, we're in NATO, under the NATO umbrella, so we're fine. Um, beyond that, there's no public communication. And so things are not going well, even when you're when we're looking at support towards Ukraine. I've heard um, over and over again the same um, issue of, yes, Romania is helping, but we cannot just um, explain what and how. We want to keep it secret, much like France, I've heard. And... Um, and, but but then when you're looking at, I don't know whether to trust that or, or not, I've heard that from independent parties too, but uh, when you're looking at things on the ground, um, the borders 
are so blocked on both sides uh, when it comes to particularly transportation of goods that um, the other day um, a driver was waiting 20 hours in his car and died at the border trying to cross. Um, And these things are not getting resolved. The Danube traffic is blocked. The Black Sea traffic is blocked. And the rail and road um, uh, transport is blocked, at least for goods. And, And so that paints a very confusing, chaotic, and a bit dire situation, frankly. It's fascinating, this distinction you made between um, different Central Eastern European countries and the perceptions. I, I think it's, it's it's very astute, like like for Hungarians, and I think to a great extent for the Slovaks, um, the perception is that this is not a war that's sort of waged against them, necessarily. It's just something that's sort of happening in the neighborhood, and you know they might blame Russia, but but I don't think they are invested quite as personally in the whole affair as as the Poles or or the Balts who do feel that it just you know happens to be the case that Ukraine is on you know in the in Russia's way but ultimately this is a war against them i mean you see that you know with russians both like revoking their recognition of lithuania yeah that's the biggest right? I mean, news. That, 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 that that i think that that sort of comes home in a in a very sort of direct way to which the lithuanians by the way responded very Cleverly. Very astutely yeah. by saying that maybe they should revisit the 1634 Treaty of Polyanovka and 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 you know some of these territories should surrender to the authority of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, um, which I, mean, I I do do like uh, very much. We can we can talk, I mean I, I suppose we can talk more about Central Eastern Europe, uh, but, but I was hoping to hear from from sort of Giselle on. On, on, on the actual situation on the on the eastern front so we've heard a lot from a lot of reports from 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 severodonetsk in particular where it's been going on for 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 a while what's your what's your sense of how the war is going well actually Dalbor, can i just ask sure. Ilya one quick question before before i launch my presentation <laughs> um so i'm t- tell us a bit more if you can about uh opinions about Who's winning and who's going to win it? As as I heard you, I thought you said that outsiders were sort of introducing the the inevitability of maybe like mm-hmm. Westerners uh, were introducing the idea of an, an inevitable uh, Russian victory, which is possibly the most depressing yeah. thing that that yeah. that you've said. Um, but I'm wondering if if how Romanians, if you can abstract out. Uh, you know what what Romanian opinion is about who's going to win. I mean, that's probably you know sort of the feeling of the inevitable power of Russia, blah blah blah, that sort of thing. But also, um, you know, you would think that there would be uh, even among and sometimes most amongst those anti-American elements at least a respect for American power or a fear of American power or something. So. Uh, do you, if you can speak a bit more on that, that would be helpful. Yeah. So I I think um, what I 
it's complicated, right? Because it's the Balkans. And so we like here, I guess, 50 shades of gray as opposed to black and white. And it's true that um, conflicts traditionally in the region have often been black and white, uh, have often been gray, sorry. So that's kind of a repetition of the same, same. I think it comes down to the fact that at the beginning, it was very hard for people across the region to comprehend, like it even was for us on the other side of the ocean, that um, Russia is not a superpower, that a superpower or that a nuclear power can be defeated conventionally. Um, that is something that people hadn't seen before. And of course, within that, uh, within that framework, the confusion was built as we progressed into the months of war. And because of the lack of public, um, from the government, public addressing of the matter, no one here, neither the president nor the prime minister, nor the minister of foreign affairs or, De or defense has stepped out in the last three and a bit months to say Ukraine must win. Russia must be defeated. No one, or the opposite of that, um, no one has said anything. So then the confusion just grows um, because people don't understand what is happening on the ground. They don't understand um, what is happening even with shipments. They just don't connect the information because the other thing that is missing here, I guess, is the issue of. The, the fact that this war is a war of values, um, bad and good values, if we can call it that. And that's also not trickling in. So when you start bringing in people from the West who are claiming the opposite and are just completely either pushing aside or ignoring or diminishing genocide, atrocities, massacres, everything that is wrong with, um, with Russia in this war, um, then confusion grows because in, with this I'll, I'll finish or I'll make a short segue to the West, um, kind of as food for thought, because when um, you don't um, talk about these things in, in any way, you can't really, um, you, you give the, the conflict that is black and white um, too many shades um, and you don't, you don't also feed into public opinion, public opinion, just as we've seen over the last few days, there's new, new polls coming out that when people are being asked, the absolute majority here continuing in a similar comparable numbers to Poland is on the right side, is on the Western and the Ukrainian side, wants Ukraine to win. But if you don't tell them that it's possible um, and you can't read that out of the news, then confusion grows. Um, and, and the last thing to throw out there is something that people don't know um, much about. And I remember Papa Haji, who was our Romanian guest recently, sort of alluded to that. Um, Romania is traditionally very Francophile. Um, a lot of people traditionally uh, learn French. Uh, French culture is very beloved here, and there's sort of a um, nostalgia for uh, we wish we had a French alliance. And we see that with rumors that the president in his second term wants a job in Brussels, as he was mentioning. So 
um, recently I was talking to someone from the region um, who knows um, and understands very well French um, national interest and policies vis-a-vis this war. And he was highlighting the following fact. And I thought it was almost hilarious um, because we're getting into the into the values thing again. Um, He said, you know, French um, policy vis-a-vis this war is very sophisticated, unlike (laughs) the American, right? Um, And they're upset that this is not being recognized, but they perceive themselves as a great nuclear power, and so do they perceive Russia. And the best example, he said, of that is the fact that while the majority of Western companies withdrew from the Russian market with no way back, the most important kind of bilateral deal, and that is the production of Renault cars in in uh, in Russia, um, that um, that deal was closed in the following way, in kind of an almost admiration way. He was saying it. Um, they um, they cut a deal with Moscow apparently to um, sell the company to the Russian state with the the possibility that within five years, Renault can buy it back. And um, I was shocked and I double checked with American friends who said, oh my God, that's appalling. Um, But for France, and I guess for Romania sort of copying that too, it's not black and white, it's gray. Well, I suppose it's better to have the, the the French trying to be sophisticated and clever than assertive and uh, you know forceful. So, but to 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 go to Dalibor's question, to the theater, uh, yeah. So, uh, but and also, I mean, it, I think some of uh, Yulia's uh, you know fifth columnists have infiltrated. Uh, <laughs> elite institutions and newsrooms and things like that uh, in the United mm-hmm. States. It's, it, it's, it's kind of comical to watch people who are essentially political uh, columnists or, or pundits uh, opine on the war without <laughs> really talking about. Um, I mean, and some, some people who's uh Political opinions I find quite reasonable and sophisticated um, are, are just so out of their depth uh, when it comes to uh, uh, looking at this. They, you know, so much of the conversation is driven by the daily control of terrain maps. So you know, a tiny place like Popozna can become, uh, you know. Uh, uh, seem to take on an importance that no no general or field marshal would ever give it. And Severodonetsk is sort of uh, achieving that status as well. You know, it's down to, oh, the Ukrainians just won back 8% of the suburbs of Severodonetsk or, you know, the, the Russian army controls 69% of the central <laughs> city. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole thing is just a pile of rocks uh, at this point, uh, one way or another. But what what I tell you, what I'm concentrating on in the Donbass battle, uh, and, and written about this a number of times, apparently without 
uh, breaking through this, um, you know, this crust of uh, punditry is the loss rates on both sides. Um, and of course, we probably know less about what's going on in the Ukrainian side than we do on the Russian side. But it's pretty clear that for these incredibly incremental gains that the Russians are achieving, that they're paying an exorbitant price um, in lost equipment and lost manpower and the expenditure of frontline equipment. Um, we've talked in the past about the Russians pulling old T-62 tanks out of mothballs. They're now doing the same thing with artillery pieces and ammunition and things like that. There were some interesting pictures up on Twitter the other day uh, and uh, uh, some threads about how volatile old Russian ammunition is. So, you know, you put the round in the artillery piece and it blows up before it ever, you know, is, is fired. Um, which is completely consistent with the pattern of, you know, sloppy Russian logistics that's been almost immediately apparent since the beginning of the war. Uh, another story that impressed me in the past couple of days is the, the really large scale Ukrainian mobilization that's going on. The, the Ukrainians believe that they can put three quarters of a million uh, uh, soldiers in the field. Uh, by this fall, and there's just no way on earth that Russia can. So, so the numbers game or pendulum is swinging very powerfully towards uh, Ukraine. So I, you know, I think it's if you look at the and if you look at the war the whole as opposed to obsessing about uh, this suburb of Severodonetsk or you know how much of. Uh, Luhansk uh, uh, is governed by the Russians. There's, you know, the, the the only question in my mind is whether in the late summer and the fall, Ukraine will have enough high-powered weaponry. Because I, I also sort of, again, have the sense that they're husbanding their strength and trying to build toward a moment where they've exhausted the Russians and then instead of just having incremental uh, small-scale counterattacks, that they can do something uh, that really um, makes a difference. So the question is, will there be sufficient Western arms uh, available to, to turn this, you know, sort of revived and reformed and rearmed um, Ukrainian military into an instrument that can, say, for example, get back to the state of play as of uh, late February of this year. Um, and that's that's also hard to know. Uh, you know, the administration is very cagey and catty about giving what it's going to give, when it's going to give it, how much training it's going to require on the part of the Ukrainians to um, um, take delivery on some of the more sophisticated pieces. I, I'm hoping that, again, it's like an iceberg that we only see 10% of and there's a much larger chunk below the water. I, I kind of believe that to be true, but... Um, 
you know, I, I, it's very difficult to prove or to demonstrate. Um, so, you know, if you put this all together in, in one big picture, uh, just to recycle the headline of the piece I wrote this this week, now is not the time to go wobbly, George. Uh, uh, and and the prospect of a, a substantial Ukrainian success uh, is still present, and I, I think, and it does seem like the Russians are really just trying to get to the border of, of uh, their republics so that I mean, you know, that they know the calculation really about as well as as anybody else. So they know they're running out of uh, out of Schlitz, and that it'll be, you know, they have to get to a point where they can hope that Macron and, and Schultz and you know the the appeasniks uh, across the West uh, uh, will take the no humiliation road. Uh, and they can negotiate something that they can then spin as a success. I have to co confess that as somebody who knows very little about military matters, I've been one of those who, I suppose, have fallen victim to following the daily updates and the changes on the map. Uh, and, and so when, you know, two weeks ago, uh, it looked like Russians were making advances in in you know around severodonetsk uh right. i you know didn't start panicking immediately but but i mean i i think sort of joined partly the, the choir of those who, who who took a much more pessimistic tone and then i was reassured by you know you and other people saying that look ukrainians had to make decisions about where to concentrate their forces and then in in my mind that that actually did reassure me but i have also sort of written off Severodonetsk Donetsk and, and much of the Donbass as a result. And, and 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 it's quite fascinating to me as is a non-expert on these issues that you know we are here two weeks later and we are still talking about fighting in Severodonetsk and still talking and it about, looks like whatever advances yeah. Russians might have made, they they made them at a at a very steep price. So so that should really add to a overall picture that's that's just much more much more, maybe not cheerful, but 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 just much more, much more reassuring and and, and optimistic than than I would have guessed uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, look, I mean, it it is, you know, it it makes it the war is is has entered a particularly grim phase. Um, uh, you know, many people have analogized it to World War One, and there, there's very much something to that. Uh, but it would also be like World War I before tanks appeal, appear on the battlefield. You know, it's more like the Battle of the Somme than uh, maybe the offensives of 1918. Um, and there is this sort of residual, you know, it's funny, it's even among the, the military expert community, there were people up front who were just saying, oh, the Russians are going to win that this is going to, the this is an inevitable outcome whether it was from their uh you know incredible gray zone you know their their way of war that they'd reformed over the last 20 years or then alternatively because they just would throw mass at the at, at the problem so there there is still this deeply entrenched uh what i would say is a prejudice that 
uh, Russians may be incompetent and brutal, but victorious. Um, so it's very hard to sort of root out that deeply embedded. There's a whole, you know, uh, mini industry of people who've been studying Russian campaigns and from, you know, Grozny to Georgia and, you know, all the way along, uh, you know, who are just uh, in, in love with their own construct about how uh, effective the Russian way of, of war is, and they're, they're having a hard time letting go of that. <laughs> it's, it's like, like they tend to be realists, and like all realists, facts are really just inconvenient things. They're only, uh, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> well, the theory is beautiful, so... Yeah, yes, exactly. It explains everything, even when it doesn't. Dalibor, you promised uh, you have some good news from Germany as we're looking on to the West, but but I, I don't know if you were thinking about building this in. I just can't help myself. There's a new term in Ukrainian, a new word called schultzing, um, yes, yes, equivalent, yes, which, means, yes, <laughs> which means promising over and over again the same thing and never delivering. Yeah, there, there are so many good lines about... Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so no, no, like I have, I have, I have two, piece, two, two, two sort of highlights. One has to do with Germany. The other one uh, is, is more about sort of energy policy. And, and and Russian energy. So 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 I think we've all um, sort of internalized that that the Titan vendor isn't all that that it <laughs> claimed to be earlier this year. There's not so much vendor there. But, but it, there, it looks like there is one lasting consequence of of of, of, of this invasion and, and and this sort of shift in in, in 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 German debate that might be helpful, which is the commitment to actually increase military spending. So, so I think both the Bundestag and the um, Federal Council uh, have approved the creation of this 100 billion euro fund to supplement the, um, the military budget, the defense budget, which like the, the, the budget for this year would, would sort of fall short of the 2% target. But when supplemented with, I think, 20 billion from this fund, it would, it would just, just about meet the target. And, and I think they have announced the plans to buy F-35s, uh, Eurofighters, I think overall, like it's 33 billion going into sort of renewing the air force, 16 billion towards renewing the the, the ground forces, uh, 8 billion for the navy, 20 billion for the all sort of digital warfare and 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 and, and digital defenses. And uh, I mean that that to me, uh, like, you know, like once once the resources have been committed and once these purchases start, like it's it's sort of you know hard to, to reverse. Like all that hardware will have to be. You know, maintained and and people will be hired and and you'll have, you know, hopefully coming out of this, you'll have just a much stronger and and more capable German military and 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 that to me for all you know all the things we've said about Scholz and 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 Germany and the haplessness uh, is a, is a good piece of news for 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 for, for Europe. I would argue. Bear me to pieces. Oh, very well. <laughs> uh, however, all right, so, so there's two. I have one sort of uh, apropos of Schultzing, one particularly uh, small but extreme example of that. So the, the Germans have uh, promised to transfer 
some of the multiple launch rocket systems that uh, some, you know the U.S. designed and made uh, rocket systems that the Ukrainians are so desperate for. However, they said they can't do it until the end of the year because the, they need a software yep. update. <laughs> Apparently, their download, uh, you know, uh, their transfer rates are, are uh, you know, very, very slow. I think somebody used this line on Twitter already, but like it used to be the case, the Germans were very innovative, like, you know, creating automobiles and, 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 and you know, engineering yeah. and so on. Now they're very crafty at like making up new excuses. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, I mean, we shouldn't stop. We shouldn't pass over Germany without talking about Frau Merkel's uh, apologia for her her performance. Dalibor, what did you make of that? Um, Do you have any regrets? uh... (laughs) (laughs) What what, what can one? Je regrette rien. What what, what, what can one say about that? You got to say something. I mean, I think that sort of like illustrates that that you didn't haven't really had a Titan when because like that would entail actually rethinking, you know, the way we've handled Russia, and and and, and maybe that there was you know a downside to the way Russia was was handled, and so it looks like that's not really, really sort of sinking in the the, the way it should. Yeah, it. So would you say this is, you know, just, uh, you know, a politician trying to, uh, you know, preserve their reputation or is this reflective, you know, how widespread a phenomenon is this? I suppose Julia might know. The sort of I think it's German... uh, to me it's telling off, yeah, Germans, many Germans, I'm sure, surely not all of them, but many Germans now increasingly. I watch from time to time German TV still as a as a kind of nostalgia in the war, and uh, they've picked up uh, in in their famous, very good, very very substantive, very detailed talk shows they've picked up um uh for the last less than a month two three weeks on the fact that their image is being destroyed in central and eastern europe that they're doing something wrong but the it hasn't that um that recognition that they have made major mistakes that hasn't sunken in yet and i'm afraid Merkel's statements are reflective of a resistance. She does not want, to me, that's how I read it, she does not want to acknowledge that she was outright wrong, that her policy, her national policy was outright wrong. Um, I'm I'm wondering, I know I'm going to keep up the pressure to, to tell them that they should be, um, that they should be acknowledging that, but mm, more than that, I, I don't, yeah, I think it's just their reluctance to it's it's sort of disappointing on 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 her part too because um like first of all like she doesn't have a political career of ahead of mm. her she doesn't have a sort of face to save in a way i don't think she has this sort of like inflated ego that needs to be sort of flattered and proven right at every juncture like she should have normally the sort of freedom to say well, let's not leave conclusions here Dalibor. i mean she should have the freedom to say yeah i was wrong and we should have handled it differently. And I think that would have been sort of liberating, I suppose, for 
for like other voices who who feel that things have once you've been crowned as chancellor of the free world it's hard to uh <laughs> hard to step back from yeah. that i don't know if you recall that article several years yes ago. i do <laughs> yeah i mean there was like a whole cottage industry right of of Yes, exactly. No, it was repeated. It's uh, it's funny times. to me how both Germany and France are insisting in their own way on staying in the game when actually beyond the schultzing and our everyday complaining about the fact that they don't do enough, they really don't matter that much. And and the reason um the re uh, right. the way I realized that is the other day here in Bucharest, someone from Poland asked me. He said, um, uh, "To me, um, I'm asking you, coming from Washington D.C. To me, throughout this war, the Biden administration has not listened to Germany and France, right?" I was like, yeah, you might be right. And, and then he said, <laughs> then he said, well, that's a good thing. But what does Biden want? Because it is in Biden's hands whether this war will be won or lost. It is up to him and his administration to deliver the weapons, sort of what you, Giselle, were, were drawing on to a bit earlier. It is um, uh, up to him to decide um, to deliver what they need um, to be able to win this war. And so Germany's um, until winter because of the software and France's endless phone calls with Macron in the end don't seem to matter at all. Yeah, and this has been lurking under the surface now for, for quite some time. You know, a lot of ink and diplomacy has been expended on talking about and outlining how Germany and France should step forward, could step forward, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it would be good, actually, I think, for the United States, for Eastern Europe in particular, but also for Europe as a whole to really digest this idea that leadership on the part of France and Germany is is not the answer to the, the problems that Europe faces, so at least not the security challenges that Europe faces. So, so, so much for my effort to at least partly <laughs> rehabilitate. <laughs> what do you, Dalibor? It was a it was a heroic <laughs> attempt, and we're going to do it again. We don't want to lose Germany altogether. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance to strike. Like I, I totally agree that. Uh, no, like Germany is not a substitute for the transatlantic alliance, like for for Central and Eastern Europe. On the other hand, like you know, like when they do something right, like with this Bundeswehr fund and and the rebuilding, I mean, I want to give them credit for that. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. No, they do deserve. How about talking? How about, about walking us through your energy? Uh... Yeah, so so very very brief. This sort of like wonkish expose. So 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 there is, as we as we know, uh, you know, the sanctions on 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 a Russian energy sector. Um, you know, the U.S. oil embargo, the EU partial oil embargo. Uh, where actually speaking of Germany, um, uh, Germans seem to be. I think the only country uh, on the receiving end of 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 of, of sort of Russian pipelines that that are considerably decreasing consumption. Uh, so so actually the demand has gone up in 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 Poland and 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 Hungary and and and, and those other places that are connected to the Druzhba uh, pipeline. But but more seriously, um, the um the issue with the oil embargo is obviously that it leads to 
a a, a price spike globally speaking and and so so Russians there is some evidence that Russians are selling oil uh at the at the discount to to third parties uh for maybe as little as $70 a barrel uh which would be like you know 30% or or more below sort of mar- the market price um but there was a report from Reuters yesterday that that showed that um, actually Russian energy revenue overall because of that global price spike might be above where it was before the war and and like if sort of current trends continue uh russians might be earning more like from energy sales over the course of this year uh than they did last year by by as much as 20 20 percent um the, the sanctions are still hurting them um it's it, i mean and the war is expensive and they have the um that the assets frozen, etc. So, so it's not like we are not really making any dent to their public finances and their sort of fiscal, fiscal prospects, and 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 it's also like what you can do with the dollars right. that, that 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 matters. But this is a problem, and there have been various proposals, uh, sort of floated to address that. So, so there was a piece um, a week ago or so by Sergei Guriev, who's a Russian economist, uh, exiled in France. Uh, who who sort of digs into two of those proposals? We can maybe include the project syndicate piece in 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 in, in the show notes uh, to to this episode. So one possibility is to impose a tariff on Russian oil exports. Uh, the problem with the tariff is that a tariff is a tax on consumers ultimately, and so if European Customers and to a lesser extent Americans are worried about high gas prices at the at the, at the pump that would make the problem worse. Uh, but Mario Draghi, being the clever you know technocrat that that he is, suggested something else, which which actually is quite intelligent, namely a price cap. So so countries that are currently uh, importing Russian oil like through this pipeline in the EU could agree on not paying more than say seventy dollars a barrel. And they could also commit to paying less by, say, you know, every month that this war goes on, they will pay $10 less per barrel. And, you know, Russians will have to deal with that. Um, they probably will keep selling the oil uh, at, at the discounted price. And simultaneously to prevent sort of a secondary black market developing, um, I mean, the EU and the US, could they, they could just sanction entities that uh, and countries that pay more for Russian oil. And that way you would sort of mitigate the effect of these of these you know increased global oil prices on 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 russian oil revenue and i think it's very much worth considering because clearly what we are doing uh is not enough right now to 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 sort of reduce the the inflow of of of, of dollars and and just for an exchange in russia can i ask you in this context for me and and for everyone to understand better how is this related to the current discussions about excluding Russia from OPEC plus in terms of price coordination? Um, do we need to convince the Gulf states to exclude them to be able, because since I think 2016, um, they created this format with OPEC plus Russia to coordinate prices. And, and now there's increasing pressure, particularly from the West, to exclude Russia, which would dissolve OPEC plus, uh, OPEC would, would remain as such. Um, but I guess that would be necessary to be able I don't think this matters a great deal for this particular scheme. I mean, the 
the the the the point is to like as long as you can sort of identify Russian oil and 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 sort of see where it's coming into global markets and th- then then you can sort of you know either cap the price or or, or sanction it uh i mean like the sort of like opeg like mechanisms um like they can stay in they can they can leave it doesn't like you know they make decisions about production like they don't really control the price like for us it's important to just put a ceiling on the price because like we are not really controlling how much money is flowing into russia right now because of 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 the high prices like they they make their own decisions about output anyway like whether they are in opec or not oh, well, um, we should we should return to this in in a dedicated episode the the questions that i have are are less about what the russians are trying to sell than what they can't buy particularly high technology products chips and so on and so forth that you know <clears throat> contribute directly and we have seen the decline of their uh, military capabilities in the course of, yeah. you know, what's still only a four-month war. So, um, you know, a kind of holistic approach to the question of what's happening in the Russian economy would be a would be a good subject. That'd be very interesting. I, I think on, on it would be good to bring somebody, but, but my, the overall sort of impression I, I, I get is that there is already a sort of debilitating effect that the sanctions have. I think like Lada or one of those car manufacturers like unveiled a new sort of purely Russian model that has, you know, like no no ABS and no airbags <laughs> and, and, and none of these things that we sort of take for granted uh, in the in the West. Uh, but but also like in the oil sector, um, the output has uh, has come down. And and it just like they, they do yeah. rely on Western technology to, to extract the oil and to keep their uh, to, to extract the oil, especially like if 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 you sort of leave a well on its own for for a while, like right. you really need you know BP or somebody to to come and and and, and put it back into operation. It's is not it's not an entirely trivial exercise. So so I think over time, like this will take its toll on 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 on, on the Russian economy. The question is how how fast it. And the question is indeed the prices um, as we're looking at oil and gas. This is pretty scary as a kind of wrap up from the Eastern Front. I um, I just heard that prices of gas in Romania, Romania is mostly energy independent, have increased compared to this time around last year by 83 uh, percent. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the politics, I think, of yes. that will be important to watch. Well, I think this may have been our longest episode ever. We do love talking amongst ourselves, <laughs> uh, especially when we deploy forward. Although, personally, I'm re- <laughs> I will I will remain in the wolf's lair and direct operations from from Tacoma Park, <laughs> <laughs> a long way from East Prussia, <laughs> from Dalibor Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly. And Yuria Zoza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.